0: Well, Father, it's good to gather this Sunday after Christmas, and uh, though it's hard to imagine this final Sunday of 2013 already, here we are at the threshold of a new year, Lord, and as we look back, we want to learn from the lessons of the past, both good and bad. Father, we want to strengthen ourselves and uh, renew our hearts to pursue Christ in 2014. And so, use your word this morning. Use this gathering time in a special way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to turn back to Matthew chapter 2. I remind you that we will be in Matthew's gospel from now on most Sunday mornings as we do a series out of the gospel of Matthew. Um, And this morning, before we pack it up, Uh, like so many Christmas decorations, and shut down the Christmas story for another year, I thought that we would benefit from some lessons from the lives of the Magi, these mysterious and most interesting fellows that we find in Matthew chapter 2. I don't know about you, but I find pretty interesting uh, some of the news programs at the end of the year. And as we wrap up 2013, one of the things that... Um, we've been reminded of are some of the notable people who have passed away in 2013. Uh, Names of of world leaders, for example, like Maggie Thatcher, uh, the Iron Lady, and Hugo Chavez, uh, the infamous Hugo Chavez, and Nelson Mandela, of course, making the news a lot here with his passing. What a remarkable story uh, involved there. Uh, some of the movie stars have made uh, 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 quite a bit of splash as the media pays attention to them. Paul Walker is one of them. Understand that Paul Walker w- uh, had a testimony for Christ at some level. I'm not sure about that. And killed in a car wreck as a young man here not too many weeks ago. Um, how about the baseball slugger Stan Musial? He passed away in 2013. As did the uh, well-known uh, astronaut and pioneer astronaut out of the 50s and 60s, Scott Carpenter. But I wonder if last February, if you picked up on this name that he passed away, Howard Hendricks. Does that name mean anything to you? Some of you recognize that name. Howard Hendricks was a professor for decades, many, many years, at Dallas Theological Seminary. He touched a lot of lives, and uh Dallas Theological Seminary is a seminary out of Dallas, Texas that for many years has impacted uh, the evangelical world, raising up Christian leaders, training pastors and leaders and missionaries around the world. It's a, quite a significant ministry. Uh, men like Chuck Swindoll uh, went, did their seminary work there. Guys like that have many names that you would recognize uh, that have influenced and impacted the church with their preaching and their work. And many of them had Howie Hendricks, as their teacher, well, how Howie Hendricks touched my life was as a young pastor attending Moody Pastors Conference in Chicago. Uh, there was a week-long gathering in the month of May that we used to go for many years. A number of years ago, some of the men here have gone with us, and we would go here, sit under some of fine preaching. And often they would bring in Howard Hendricks, who was an old man at that time. I think he was well into his 80s when he died last February. In fact, when I heard that he passed away, I sat down a few days later when his memorial service was uh, streamed online. And I watched his memorial service. It just touched my heart. The great testimony of a faithful servant who for many years just taught the Word of God to Christian leaders. Taught a lot about the home and the family and uh, about Christian education in the church. Well, one time I was in a seminar with Howie Hendricks at Moody Pastors Conference, and he always used an overhead projector. Well, I'm, I'm a step uh, uh, down from that, and I'm using a marker board this morning. Um, and Howie Hendricks, he, on his overhead projector with his marker pen, um, remember what overhead projectors were? He would, he would write, he drew a picture of a funnel. And, it, you know, it looks something like this. And he began to talk to all of us pastors in the room. And he talked about all of the things that you can get caught up in. All of the things that fill your life. You know about it. You know all the things that you can do. And he he named many things. You know, all the things. You know, change the oil on the car. you gotta, you got to take the kids to school. you got to do all kinds. you got to go up and go to work. All kinds of things. And when he applied it to pastors, he talked about all the different things that pastors could do. But then he challenged us to think about shooting out of the funnel then, what is the one thing that we, and he said, that we must do. What is the one thing that that we must do? And, you know, these are all the things that we can do. But what must we do? That thought has stuck in my mind that Howard Hendricks presented. Of all the things that can shoot into the funnel of our lives that we allow, we control into that funnel, when you stop and think about it, What are some things, or what is the thing that you have to say, I must do this? These other things can go, but I must do this. And as I think about my own life, and as I think about the life of our church, I want to challenge us today on this closing Sunday of 2013, as we cross the threshold into 2014 already. Remarkable how quickly time has gone by. Remember Y2K? I mean, it seems like it was just the other day. It was 13 years ago. And we are still haven't flown from together. But uh, here we enter a whole new year. And as we think about ourselves as a church, the church, the bride of Christ, as we think about ourselves as individuals, and I trust that you, you know Christ as your Savior, and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, what must you do? Well, I speak in a relatively broad category. And it's going to be up to you to try to make that apply to your life in more specific ways. And in many ways today, our message is a relatively simple message. And you need to take these principles, and you need to ponder them, and you need to pray about them, and you need to make application to your life so that as we enter 2014, we can do what I'm challenging myself and what I challenge our church, that there is nothing more important that we must do than pursue after Christ. If there's one thing we must do, we must be in pursuit of Christ. And there's so many things that we can get distracted with. There's many things that we, that we hang about as so many trappings that we hope will help us pursue Christ that sometimes become sidebars of distraction. So I don't know what the order of your life is. I don't know what the needs, the felt needs of your life. I just know that as the church of Christ... as the the body of Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must, with great energy, enthusiasm, and intention, pursue Christ. When we look at the Christmas story one more time, certainly there is an identifiable group of guys who we don't know much about them, and they might have had a lot of flaws, but one thing you have to say about them, they were in pursuit of Christ. I'd like to use them as a model. It's Matthew chapter 2 and it's the Magi, these mysterious guys. We, we don't know a lot about them as we uh, were reminded last week by uh, Dr. Shoupi in, in his uh, first-person account with Joseph talking about um, the Magi when they came to the house. That was interesting, wasn't it? It was good. We think that these Magi were some 700 miles to the northeast, Matthew gives us such a sketchy account. He gives us just minimal uh, amounts of information, and yet it's adequate for us to imagine exactly what happened. It's certainly on purpose. He certainly did not forget to write down things. We don't know a lot about the Magi. We don't know a lot about the star. We don't know a lot about what these men believed. It's possible that they were polytheistic. It's possible that they weren't even monotheistic. It's possible that they were in pursuit of yet another God, that they were trying to discern what is truth, and that they didn't know what is truth. As Dr. Shupi implied last week, many Bible students believe that, that the, the magi, these wise men who worked for the king, um, they... They probably were students of of all kinds of literature, but it's likely that it was during the time of the Babylonian captivity while Daniel was there and others that they heard from them, that they were even taught Daniel was categorized as a magi, as one of the wise men. You remember that he saved their lives on more than one occasion by answering the king's riddle or answering the king's dreams. And so there was Daniel... It is possible that there is extra biblical writing that they had. That is, that Daniel taught them, or that other godly men, God-fearing men out of Israel, taught by the prophets um, and students of the Old Testament and of the Pentateuch, that they could have taught the Magi while they were in captivity and that this was passed on or even preserved in their libraries. We don't know. We don't know. And it's possible that they actually had parts of the book of Daniel that we have today and uh, that they studied in, in Daniel. He gives numbers and, and he gives dates and he gives you systems to try to kind of figure out when it was that Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Particularly, he, he pinpoints the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on what we call Palm Sunday. It's possible that the Magi studied all of this, but we just don't know a lot about them. What we do know about them is that they pursued Christ. They knew enough to chase after Christ. I think that that's a good model for us. Let's read a little bit of our text, and let's draw from their example some lessons that I think can be very valuable to us today. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The first lesson we have in this model of the Magi for us in pursuing Christ is this. The Magi in their pursuit of Christ, number one, completely shifted their life priorities. They completely shifted their life priorities. I don't know exactly what it must have been like to be part of the Magi club, But they must have gotten together on a regular basis where they had libraries, they had big tables, they had telescopes, they were students of of astronomy, they studied the night skies, they studied the solar uh, patterns, they were not dummies, sometimes we think because they didn't have electronic devices that they would not be as smart as we are. I think that you would be overwhelmed with the, the mental horsepower of these guys. They were coming up with the mathematical formulas that, that I can't even learn when somebody's teaching them to me. And, and they were incredible brainiacs. They studied together. They worked together. But one day, it dawned on them that they had some information that they had to deal with, and that was that somehow they understood that Messiah, King of the Jews, was going to be born in Jerusalem, in that vicinity, and that they wanted to pursue that. They wanted to go there. Listen, you, the pursuit of Christ demands the realignment of life priorities. Do you realize that? The pursuit of Christ means that i cannot stay where i am today i have to move and the magi model that for us imagine them going home and looking at their wives i guess magi had wives and kids start packing up their suitcases and the wife says what are you doing unless they took them with them i don't know It was a big trip i doubt it and they said where are, where are you going i'm going to find christ i'm in pursuit of christ how long are you going to be gone i don't know so who's going to feed the dog when you're gone I don't know, but I'm pursuing Christ. See, they realigned all of their priorities. Now, they had a great luxury. I take it that they had some level of sponsorship. I take it that they had, they had the government behind them. At some level, they, they worked for political powers who wanted them to be the smartest guys in the world. And so somehow, in, in the sense of what we might think of as a, a National Geographic-sponsored trek, these wise men load up and head at least... 700 miles probably, on a journey in pursuit of Christ. But think about it. They had to, once they took that step in pursuit of Christ, they had to realign their life priorities. All of a sudden, some things become lesser things, and the pursuit of Christ becomes a greater value in my life. I want to suggest to us that modeling after the wise men, that 2014 is time for us to make the pursuit of Christ a priority in our lives. Now, I recognize that we can't just shut down our lives and pursue Christ full time. You know what that would look like, right? Uh, Honey, aren't you going to work today? Nope, not going to work today. You're not going to work today. No, what are you going to do? I'm just going to sit in the family room and meditate. I'm pursuing Christ. You know, your kid says, I'm not going to school today, Mom. I'm just going to pursue Christ today. Well, what does that mean? And that would get awful boring, and God didn't call us to just sit around and examine our navels and call it pursuing Christ. God called us to live productive lives. He called us to provide for our families. He called us to grow and develop and and make ourselves better and to take the resources at hand and use them for His honor and glory and to be a productive people. But in the process of it all, we are to be identified as those who are in pursuit of Christ. But how easy is it at the top of that funnel to have so much going on in our lives that we never get to the most important thing? Everything just kind of clogs up the funnel. And we never really get to pursuing Christ. So we don't have the luxury of just shutting down and full-time going on this journey to pursue Christ. So let me try to help us with three simple questions that should help us maybe align our life priorities in the pursuit of Christ. The first one is this. Okay, so how do I establish priorities in my life so that I can see Christ more clearly and I can pursue after Him? Question number one, I think we need to ask ourselves this question. What in my life needs to go? What in my life needs to go? For some of us in our life, the question needs to be phrased, who in my life needs to go? Now, it can't be someone you're married to, okay? It's not that easy, even though you might think that. But for some of you, you've got people in your life that as long as those people are in your life, you are not pursuing Christ and you know it and they're pulling you down. And so you need to ask yourself, who in my life needs to go? But the main question I want to ask is, what needs to go? What in my life needs to go? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and let me show you the basis for my thinking on this question. Okay, so we're asking ourselves three questions to help us establish priorities so that like the magi, we can completely shift the life priorities of our lives to pursue Christ. Question number one, what needs to go? Hebrews chapter 12, look at verses 1 and 2. In Hebrews chapter 12, he's going to begin by talking about This great cloud of witnesses, that's everybody in Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that? Moses and Abraham and Noah and all these great men and women of faith, some who ended up losing their lives, having loved ones sawn asunder uh, and so forth, having been uh, eaten by wild animals because of their faith, and yet they never renounced Christ. And they're held up in Hebrews chapter 11 as the great faith hall of fame. When he goes into chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews then calls... references all of those as this, this surrounding cloud of witnesses as though they're sitting in the stadium seats and we're now living out the faith in front of them. So look what he says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's read a little bit in verse 3. Consider him, that's Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's a good word for the year, isn't it? Do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Keep pursuing after Christ. That's what he's talking about here in Hebrews chapter 12. Now I want you to see that he speaks specifically about two things that will keep you from living this life of faith, and and looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Two things. He said, you need to lay aside the weights. Did you see that? And and then he said, and the sin, in the ESV, it's translated, which clings to us so closely. In the NIV or the King James, I think it talks about um, that entangles us. Kind of the mental imagery of getting your feet tangled in a rope. So he talks about two things. The first thing is the weights, and the second thing is the sin. So I take it that the weights are not necessarily sin. But these things have to go so that we can see Christ, so that we can pursue after Christ. Do this, he said. What has to go? If I'm going to prioritize my life to pursue Christ, number one, the weights have to go. So what are the weights in your life that keep you from pursuing Christ? This would be things that are not necessarily sinful. They maybe can become sin. Because I think you could argue that if something keeps you from growing in Christ, it could be a sin. But what are the weights? The things that are okay. The things that are not condemned in Scripture per se. Things that are about every day. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's your truck. And trying to fix up your truck too much. Maybe it's social media and being just immersed in social media and and you can't put down your facebook or whatever it is you're into and your life is just consumed with it it's not that it's wrong it's interesting you're staying in touch with people you got all these good reasons why you're doing it but the next thing you know your life is just consumed with it maybe it's uh you want to make more money and you're just driven to make more money it's not wrong to want to be productive it's not wrong to want to make more money but maybe you need to just like say, we have to do less. And maybe we have to do with less so that Christ can mean more to us. Maybe it's just general busyness that's weighing you down. And so you sleep in and you never come to one of the quality Bible teaching Sunday school classes we have. Or a Wednesday night small group. you just got quality classes going on with excellent teachers. And you could grow and you could get to know people in a smaller group if you were there week in and week out. But, oh, you're too tired. Or, oh, I'd rather just go to Bob Evans during that time. Well, so would a lot of people. But it only takes an extra hour. Do it a different time. So what is it that needs to go in your life? What is weighing you down? And then how about the sin? He said, then there's sin. You know, and probably only you can identify that inside yourself. What are some of the things that are, have become sin in your life that are keeping you from growing in Christ? They're, are a lid on your spiritual growth and they, they take away your interest in spiritual things. Some of you need to get rid of your music garbojo and It's in your car. You need to clean out your CDs. You're listening to horrible stuff. Some of you got movies at home. You gotta quit watching that stuff. It fills your mind. Saturday night, you're watching stuff that's horrible and you're sitting there enjoying some story that's all about sin and things that you don't need and pouring into your brain, and then you're going to come and and you're going to pursue Christ? It's not going to happen. That stuff's too powerful. I'm not saying that you can ever free yourself from the things of the world completely, but the flesh is going to war against you. And the world around us presses in. What's got to go? What's got to go? Two other quick questions will not belabor them. The second question is, what really matters? What really matters? And you can just write down 1 John 2, 15-17. 1 John 2, 15-17. He says, don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in you. But he says in verse 17, but he that does the will of God abides forever. The things that are lasting are the things that are of God's will for your life. Only you can discern that. What does God have for you in 2014? What really matters? Well, you can find out in a hurry how little some things really matter, can't you? We had a crazy thing happen this week. For some unknown reason to me, um, even though I'm the Iron Man, I got sick again this week with, the, with a stomach virus. Uh, Thursday night, it was our grandkids' christmas present to take them to cowboy christmas we had a good time we uh, about halfway through the program i just started getting sick we bring the grandkids home part of the christmas gift was cowboy christmas and sleepover at nanny and pappy's and it was all fun and i'm up in the guest room uh, isolating myself from the family getting all sick through the night and nanny's got the kids sleeping the next morning nanny fixes breakfast pappy's still sick as can be and i'm just out of circulation and one of the grandkids clogged the toilet and uh, we didn't know it. Janet was in another part of the house. Their mommy came and took them away. And, and uh, I'm on the couch now, sick and sound asleep. And we don't know, at least a half hour, if not an hour into it, I, I go to use the bathroom and our whole hardwood floor is water. And right underneath that bathroom is my dungeon desk. My dungeon desk is where God speaks to me and I speak to you. It's my, my bookcases. It's, it's a hole in the ground. It's like, it's like where God speaks to me. i got a desk there. I've got stacks of paper, stacks of periodicals, all kinds of Bibles and Three bookcases filled with books and all that water poured down on that desk and on those bookcases and that stuff. Well, I found out in a hurry who my good friends were that showed up to help me uh, with a couple phone calls and I appreciated it. And we got fans going and dehumidifiers going. And you know, I was just thinking, I was thinking stacks of papers just totally soaked. Water just poured down. And I got a big trash bag and I just started peeling through that stuff. I was sitting on a chair and I was stinking sick and I was just like and I was thinking like, that doesn't matter that doesn't matter that doesn't matter that doesn't matter well that one matters and I hang it up on a clothesline to dry <laughs> and you know probably seven eighths of all my paper stacks and my periodical stacks and all the articles I was going to read and need to read and a lot of, I'll never get to it doesn't matter so I've been meaning to clean out the dungeon for a while The dungeon's getting pretty clean right now. How much of our life really doesn't matter? really doesn't matter. It might be of interest, but we need to define down. We don't have long enough to live to gather in all the information that's available to us today. And I hated to lose some nice books, and I thank the Lord for my ministry account that's provided part. I'll be able to replace it, no problem. And it's it's good it happened to me, because I can replace it easily. But, and a lot of them I'm salvaging. But you know what I mean when you have something like that happen? And all of a sudden you realize, you know what, that's just really not important. Nobody lost an eye. And we're all still here and it's just not that important. That's what I mean by asking ourselves to prioritize our lives. What needs to go? What really matters? In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, you don't have to turn there, but he says, you need to redeem the time. Question number three for prioritizing your life. What am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? If I'm going to pursue Christ, what am I waiting for? A better day tomorrow? That's a myth. That's the same theory as it's starting a diet tomorrow is easier than starting today. It's never easy. It's never easy. The pursuit of Christ is never easy. I still love my grandkids, by the way. And I never got mad. I was too sick. <laughs> Just one of those things. Well, here's these wise men completely shifting their priorities, completely shifting their life priorities so that they could pursue Christ. As we evaluate our priorities, what needs to go, what really matters, what am I waiting for? Secondly, I want you to see in the passage that it says that. They came to worship Him. Look at verse 2. Number 2, I want you to see that they had a clearly defined goal. They had a clearly defined goal for their mission. Where is He who has been born King of the Jews, they said, for we saw His star when it rose, and we have come to worship Him. They had one goal in mind. They weren't coming just to learn more about the stars. They weren't coming to learn what was going on in Jerusalem. They came to worship Jesus. And indeed they did. Look down at verse 10. Verse 9, "...after listening to the king, behold the star that they had seen rose. And when they saw the star," verse 10, "...they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy." And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. That's what they came for. They rearranged their life priorities so that they could pursue the goal of worshipping Jesus. Now, you've got to stop and think about that for a minute. Grown men entering the house and falling down on their knees. In our culture, we don't do that much. I'll ask you a question. When's the last time you worship Jesus? Did you worship this morning already? Are you worshipping right now? This is kind of a buggy question. It bothers me a little bit. You know, because we put together our orders of service, and we sing and pray and give a missions update and preach, and we call it an order of worship. We have a worship service. Did we worship? I don't know. Worship's pretty personal, isn't it? Can I make you worship? I cannot make you worship. Who's responsible for worship? When do you worship? Now, I think it's very valuable to sing together theologically correct hymns, courses and songs and psalms, and to encourage one another, we're to build each other up with that. I think that acknowledging God's greatness in our hymns and in our courses and our songs that can be corporate worship. I think that sitting quietly and respectfully and tuning in my brain with a heart prepared to listen to the Word of God can be an act of worship and an important part of our worship. I think that ministering to one another in surrender and sacrifice and meeting one another's needs can be meaningful worship. I think with a right heart prepared, placing an offering in the basket can be an act of worship. But are you characterized as worshiping Jesus? When do you worship Jesus? When is the last time you've been on your knees worshiping Jesus? Literally, physically. You know what I mean? We just don't fit this stuff in very well, do we? And I think that people who are in pursuit of Jesus are people who worship Jesus and people who worship Jesus bend their knee before Jesus. And I want to challenge us as individuals, to begin to develop as worshipers. That doesn't mean that I want a lot of hoopla in our auditorium on Sunday morning. I don't care if you raise your hands and that kind of thing. I don't think we disrupt one another corporately. But I think that there ought to be some time when we're focused on Christ to the degree that I literally worship Him. I I lift Him up in my heart, and in my soul, and I acknowledge His greatness, and I ascribe words of greatness to Him, and maybe I'm down on my knees or down on my face, I would suggest in private, don't make a spectacle of yourself, but that you would find a place and a time where you bend your knee and you bow your head and and you worship. You worship. I've referenced before that it seems like the easiest time for me to worship where I express myself openly is when i 'm by myself out in the church woods walking my dog, and most often it 's on sunday night it 's our quiet night of the week. I take my dog for a walk about dark janet 's asleep on the couch johnny 's at Bible quiz practice, whatever I get old chance, and off we go for a walk, and I begin to meditate and The Lord begins to just stir my heart, and He brings conviction—conviction about all the things I said wrong during the day. And I ask Him to blot that out of people's minds. And and then I think of all the conversations I've had through the day, and things I need to remember. And and then the the Lord, you know, and I just—then a song comes in my heart. And sometimes I hold my hand up and I'm walking, and just Lord, and you worship Him. And I don't know—I don't know how to do it. Do you? I don't think you like look up in a book, this is what you say, this is what you do. But I think you are so driven in your pursuit of Christ and your love for Christ that He went to the cross and He did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He substituted Himself in. He became the the Lamb that was slain for us so that I don't have to go to the cross, so that I don't have to stand before a holy God someday and try to explain to Him why I did all the stupid sinful things I've done. And that none of that is on a record anywhere. And there you go, there, and your heart is lifted in the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, and where He took your sin and He gives you His righteousness, and then your heart sings, and then the words to some of the good music you've been listening comes in, and you start to squack it out. Somehow, God is pleased in that worship. Does that make sense? I mean, we don't have a good voice. We don't have it together. I don't even remember all the words, and I repeat the words. And and God is pleased because he desires worshipers, doesn't he? We need the attitude of John the Baptist that's coming up in John chapter 3 in our series. Next week, we meet that strange, crazy old coot. John the Baptist. And he said, he said, there he is. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The one who's... I'm not even worthy to unlace his sandals. That's how Jesus is. And so we become worshipers. The priorities of our lives are given over to the goal of our life, which is to worship Christ. One final thought from our passage in Matthew chapter 2 is that I want you to see that not only had they completely, these magi, shifted their life priorities... Not only did they have a clearly defined life goal, but number three and finally, they carefully observed the Scriptures. They found Christ in the Scriptures. Number three, they carefully observed Scripture. Notice what happened. It said... When we saw his star rose, we have come to worship him. They asked Herod, we already read this earlier, he was troubled. So he goes to his chief priests and his scribes and he said, Boys, tell me, where is this Jesus found? And they knew right away Micah 5.2 and the prophets of old had spoken. So that comes to the Magi. You have to believe that the Magi had, as I've already referenced, studied the book of Daniel. Other prophets... You know, in, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 9, it talks about a bright star over Jerusalem. That a great darkness has come, but a light has come, and there's a star over Jerusalem in Isaiah 60. Back in Numbers chapter 24, it talks about kings bringing frankincense and gold and coming to worship. Did the, did the Magi read this stuff and put it together? Did they understand from Isaiah 60 that there was a star Did they get the idea of gold, frankincense, and myrrh from Numbers chapter 24? It's possible because they were students of literature and no doubt the scripture that they did have, they dug deep and in it they found Jesus. I'll tell you, that is the reason we have a Bible. Do you know that? We don't really have a Bible to tell us how David killed Goliath. We don't really have a Bible to tell us, along with Dave Ramsey, how to manage our money. That's good stuff. And it's there. We don't have a Bible. We don't have a Bible to tell us how the earth is going to end. It's all there and it's real. But all of that is there to tell us about who Jesus is. The whole Bible is the story of Jesus. It's not a Bible about parting the sea. It's not about the little boy who gave his lunch. What a fine little boy he was that he gave up his lunch to Jesus. It's about Jesus who took the lunch and fed the people with it. And He can give you everlasting life, the bread of life. It's all about Jesus. And so this year, like the Magi, as we study the Scripture, we need to see Jesus. So my challenge to myself, my challenge to you, is in our pursuit of Jesus, that we rearrange our priorities so that our goal is to be a true worshiper of Christ, so that when we read the Scripture, we find Christ. So I challenge you to begin anew and afresh with your Bible reading for the year. And to see Jesus. Find Jesus in Genesis. I should play that song right now, right? From about 15 years ago. In Genesis, he's in Numbers, Exodus. Can't remember. You know. It's a good song. It goes through every book of the Bible and it says who Jesus is there. Find Genesis in Numbers. Find Genesis and Find Jesus in Deuteronomy. Find Jesus in Joshua. Find Jesus in the Psalms. Find Jesus Everywhere you look, in the Minor Prophets, the Major Prophets, in Proverbs, he's our wisdom, right? In the Psalms, he's our Good Shepherd. You know, he's there on everywhere. We need to pursue Christ and to be pursuers of Christ. We've got to dig deep in the Word. So I did copy some Scripture reading pages. They're simple. You can Google your own. You can just go online and type in um, Bible reading um, whatever, Bible reading charts and you'll have like 39,000 to choose from. And you can print out your own. The one I printed out is the one I'm going to use. I forgot to bring it up here. I had a hundred of them on the back counter this morning. It doesn't even have a label on it. All it has is every book of the Bible, and then in every book of the Bible, every chapter that's in each book of the Bible, it has a little square with a number for each chapter. So that if you read a chapter, you can just check it. Put it in your Bible. I would encourage you maybe to make a special mark at each chapter because halfway through the year when you lose your chart um, or it gets flooded, you'll be mad that you don't know which chapters you read. But I like it because it's not one of those that you have to read three chapters here and three chapters here and three chapters here for today to make it through the Bible this year because then when I mess up, I'm so far behind. But in my study, I'm all over the Bible reading different chapters and I can check them off as I go. And put it all together. Regardless, find something that works. Get a translation that's comfortable for you to read. It's not wrong to read a paraphrase, even. Read it. See Christ. Begin to study. Get in a class. We have excellent Bible teachers. The book of Colossians is coming up. Christ is going to be in Colossians. Our other teachers will be teaching topics. How does Christ intersect with that? So, of all the things you can do in 2014, there we got our funnel. We can do all kinds of things, right? And, face it, we ought to do many things. But of all the things that I can do, and of all the things that I ought to do, what must I do? I tell you, what we must do is we must pursue Christ. We must pursue Christ. And He must increase. And we must decrease. Another simple way is to be here for our Matthew series, our Beatitudes series. You're going to grow from that. I'm going to grow from it. We're going to encourage one another. Rearrange the priorities. Set the goal to worship. Dig into scriptures and see Jesus. Let's see 2014 be a great year shaping us, conforming us to the image of Christ. So, Father, we commit ourselves to You. We're grateful that we have our church, and we have one another, and we have our Bibles. We're very blessed, and yet we admit how easily distracted we are. And so help us, as we wrap up the year, to not grind ourselves down so much about all the unfulfilled goals of 2013, but show us how to live out the, the majestic goal of pursuing Christ in 2014 and how to realign our lives and to move ourselves from where we are today to where Christ is. You show us, you convict us, you lead us and teach us, I pray, through the shepherding ministry of your Holy Spirit. Amen.